Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. This is the camera record of earthquake disaster 220 miles out of Belgrade in Skopje, ancient capital of the Yugoslav province of Macedonia. The city of more than 200,000 that had become a popular vacation spot is the victim of a cataclysmic quake that leaves nearly 90% of its buildings either demolished or rendered unusable because of heavy damage. As word reaches the outside world, the full impact of the worst natural disaster in modern Yugoslav history becomes apparent. News clippings from the British Pathé. The year is 1963. Aftershocks, about 100 new small earthquakes, only add to the terror that grips the stunned population. Amongst all this was a five-year-old Misko Kubrinovsky. Misko went on to become an internationally renowned expert in quake engineering. Today he works at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch and was this month awarded the 2022 Research Medal for his huge contribution to post-quake recovery of the city that's now his adopted home. Welcome to Voices with me, Kadambri Raghukumar. More on Misko Kubrinovsky's research later, but how did this huge event shape the journey of his life as a quake engineer? You experienced something pretty um, pretty life-changing at the age of five. His perception of things are uh, is very different, and it's good to be that way. I, I wasn't very much aware. I knew that uh, what was happening was uh, something extraordinary by the reaction of people around me due to the fact that uh, for one year we were relocated in a different city, uh, waiting for, for the, uh, our uh, building to be repaired. A nation in mourning for the dead, mounting toward 1,000, with perhaps as many as 700 bodies still within the rubble. How big was this earthquake? The magnitude actually was not very high. It was 6, 6.1, but the location was the worst possible. It was very shallow and located just where the center of the city is. Very shallow uh, uh, hypocenter, about five kilometers. So all the energy that was released really severely affected the central area of the city. And that is where the, uh, most of the damage actually happened. There were a lot of collapses of, uh, of buildings, so larger buildings. And that is why the, the, the number of fatalities was uh, quite large and above uh, 1,000. A city as old as Western civilization will be rebuilt on a safer site to be determined later. Growing up, how did you see the impact of that spillover a few years? It would have taken many years for a city to repair itself from, from that damage. Really, uh, throughout the childhood and the early age, uh, Skopje was rebuilding. Uh, it was a huge project of uh, reconstruction. That was pretty much the period when earthquake engineering was evolving, uh, emerging as, a, as a, an engineering discipline. So there was a lot of attention throughout the world around what happened in Skopje, and there was a lot of uh, international support, uh, especially from experts from, from US and Japan, and they would come and they would spend longer period of time 
uh, trying to to help uh, the community to rebuild uh, uh, the city and because of that huge activity then an institute of earthquake engineering was established which became pretty well known in in europe it was one of the three top institutions in earthquake engineering and, and that earthquake pretty much helped uh, to establish uh, that area uh, within uh, Macedonia and Yugoslavia at the time. How did it impact your family and what did you see were the changes that it it brought about? My father was actually a very famous civil engineer and uh, he was uh, hugely involved in the reconstruction of the city. So that is another reason why I kind of leaned towards civil engineering and uh, he was uh, very active around the uh, rebuilding of the city, was, was leading uh, many of those activities. Uh, I have to say uh, from a kid's perspective that I had uh, going through elementary and high school, actually Skopje was rebuilt quite quickly, reasonably quickly. And by the time we were around 14, 15 years old, the city had already very nice new modern looks. Uh, with the concept that evolved from uh, Kenzo Tange, who was a, a Japanese famous uh, urban planner and architect who actually developed the city, the design for the uh, new urban plan for the city of Skopje. There was a lot of uh, support, uh, worldwide support, uh, and the rebuild happened uh, reasonably fast, given the fact that the city was really uh, severely damaged by the, by the event. Since you studied in Skopje and moved on to Tokyo, mm -hmm. you seem to have been following following areas that, that are invariably earthquake-prone out of interest. How have you seen that that sort of cultural preparedness differ between countries? Were there any yes. differences that you saw when you moved from Macedonia, former Yugoslavia, to Japan to realize that cultural preparedness is also a thing, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's a very, very good question. And actually, uh, it, it is quite different as you move across different countries. And there are so many factors that are the reasons for those differences. Uh, maybe one a very important factor is the immediate experience of the population with recent earthquakes, whether the population and then authorities and, and government and everyone is really aware of the of the seismic hazard when i lived in japan for 15 years every year there was a significant event that was affecting the population so in that sense the general population is very much aware of those hazards and they are very knowledgeable in, in japan you know ordinary people know what liquefaction is because they have experienced it many times they have seen it so many times on the news so in that sense, this is a constant present news. The reaction to that is that you have large number of institutions, large number of, uh, let's say, organized efforts, uh, very good education and follow-on activities that are trying to elevate the preparedness of the, of the country for those kind of events. And, and those are, are quite different, uh, especially if you have in mind that uh, you know each country and society is at a different stage of development and evolution so once you have good understanding of those positions and traditions actually you will be in a much better position to influence further development and to bring bring to changes which are going to support that particular community so in that sense 
understanding of culture is fundamental in whatever you do. And certainly including this uh, seismic protection of communities because understanding culture and blending culture with uh, understanding of the society and, and current priorities with technical information from engineers and scientists that is really how those things should be organized. You said that you experienced a number of earthquakes in your time in Japan over a period of 15 years. Mm-hmm. Some of that must have been very, very terrifying. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. You know, uh, different people react to earthquakes in different ways. And, and well, for some reason, not that I'm particularly brave or whatever, but my reaction to earthquakes is very calm. And uh, the same is with with my daughter, but my wife's reaction is is very opposite. Uh, all of that is is kind of natural, you know. The maybe also the information is important. For example, uh, when selecting places where we would live in Japan, because uh, I was very much aware of the very high seismicity, I was extremely careful to to select a building and house and home that we will have, which will be at high standards. So in that sense. I, I I know in advance that uh, here nothing serious should happen in, in, in this particular structure. If you're careful enough, everything will be fine. So in that sense, there's absolutely no reason for panic. I wanted to ask, in between all your travels and your relocations over the wo- all mm-hmm. across the world, your country went through a significant breakup, Yugoslavia broke up. Mm-hmm. How did that impact your family's life? When I left... For Japan, actually, I left from Yugoslavia at that time, and uh, I, I didn't even think of that possibility that that country may not exist one or two years later. That was completely out of the mindset for most of the people, if not all of people of Yugoslavia, I would say. So I was deep into doing my PhD studies at, at Tokyo. At that time, I first I went alone. My daughter was just one year old. And uh, they, my wife and my daughter uh, uh, were back, they stayed back in Skopje, in Macedonia. And they joined me after one year with the idea to stay for uh, another year with me. At that time, actually, the turmoil in Yugoslavia started. And those three years were extremely difficult. Uh, for one of those three years, we were together. But for two of those three we were separated and they were in Macedonia. Things were very unstable. It wasn't clear whether the war will move towards Macedonia or not. There was clear indication that Macedonia will probably stay away, but that wasn't certain. And in that sense, it was an extremely difficult time. I think half of the scholarship that I've got from the uh, Japanese government, I spent it on telephone Costs uh, just talking at that time, there was no internet, so the, the phone was the only way to connect with family. Uh, it, it was a difficult time. So, during the end of the PhD, uh, Professor Ishihara, who was my mentor, who is, by the way, the, the, the legendary figure in the field of liquefaction, and we have worked together for 15 years, he just said, I think you should stay here and uh, we continue working together because things are really not looking uh, good there. And I pretty much said immediately, yeah, I I think I I should do that because there was not much point for me going back there where things were uh, completely uncertain. And um, so that is how actually that uh, war in Yugoslavia and instability contributed to me to make that decision to, to continue in Japan. We were in Japan for another 12, 13 years before deciding to to move to New Zealand. Mm
So your focus here in New Zealand has been largely around soil liquefaction. Would you say that what we experienced here in 2010 was really one of those biggest events in history in terms of the damage that liquefaction caused in Christchurch while you were living there? That is certainly the case. Uh, the only comparable event is probably Niigata, 1964 earthquake that hit Japan. And uh, liquefaction damage was quite significant in that event as well. Kobe is another earthquake in 1995. Again, but liquefaction occurred mostly on reclaimed land, a few artificial islands. But in terms of size of the city that was affected and the overall impact on the community, I think, in my view, Christchurch is definitely at the top. Misko's work around liquefaction has been internationally recognised. And here in New Zealand, he's played a key part in the research and recovery efforts in Christchurch. In research, what we are trying to establish is really what are the key factors that govern damage? What is causing damage? Because if we understand what is causing damage, then as engineers, we can mitigate those effects and we can reduce damage. So obviously when coming to New Zealand, I was very much aware of the, of the high seismicity of, of New Zealand and uh, like Wellington and, and certain areas, are, it, it is well known in the world that uh, uh, there are highly seismic areas and that large earthquakes are expected to reasonably frequently affect areas of New Zealand. Looking, you know, 12 years uh, uh, back uh, over the past 20 years, what we have done and what we contributed with our research efforts, uh, I'm really happy that I was here because all that knowledge that and experience and preparation that I accumulated over my whole career I, I was able to, to turn to fruition and, and to use it and to, to support uh, New Zealand geotechnical engineers and, and the community as a whole. Even before the earthquakes, knowing the high liquefaction potential of many parts of New Zealand, with some of my colleagues, uh, I led the development of the first uh, guidelines documents for liquefaction in New Zealand. And, and we published those uh, in July 2010, just two months before the, the first earthquakes hit Canterbury. So in that sense, I was at the, at the right time, at the right place, uh, from a professional perspective, I would say definitely so. Do you ever wish that you could contribute in ways to Macedonia with your research after all of these years? Yes, absolutely. So I am extremely well connected internationally. I, I work really with people uh, from all parts of the of the world addressing uh, issues associated with uh, earthquakes. Uh, I am currently the chair of the Technical Committee on Geotechnical Earthquake Engineering, and, and this is the, the highest international committee uh, working on worldwide level, really trying to provide that kind of, of support. Macedonia is my uh, uh, country of origin, obviously is a special and always will be a special place, and not only Macedonia, we, we really try to support those activities and promote them so that we, we achieve better performances uh, across the world, including in all societies, uh, developed, but certainly developing societies, and they need most of the support. Geotech engineer Misko Kubrinovsky of Canterbury University, who's just been awarded the Research Medal for his earthquake research. I'm Kadambri Ragokumar. Every week, I produce a podcast episode on people like Misko who bring their experiences from all parts of the world to life here in New Zealand. 
You can find more inspiring stories like these on the Voices page on the RNZ website and also follow the podcast on Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio and everywhere else you get your podcasts from. Today's episode was mixed by Jeremy Veal and I'm Kadambri Raghukumar. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.